The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so as we're you know, moving toward the uh, end of this, this day, I want to say that we're probably not going to get to a, like a complete solution with a bow tied on it. You're starting to get that sense, right? But what I'm trying to do is articulate the problem more carefully. Uh, you know that a well-posed question works better than an ill-posed question in science, right? And so what I'm trying to highlight with this whole issue of is the mind seeing correctly um, is that some of the ways we're seeing are not beneficial to us. And so there's motivation then of how could I see something differently. But, and somebody pointed out this to me at one of the breaks, directly challenging our way of thinking is pretty much as effective as walking up to somebody and saying, let me tell you why your view is wrong. Is that effective? <laughs> no. So there's, there can be a tightening up and almost a you know, bearing down on, no, I, the way I'm seeing it is right. So it's more subtle than that. And the path is um, something that involves, that's why it then involves the love, the compassion, um, also the well-being that comes through meditation. It's not accidental that I'm emphasizing, oh, feel relaxation in the body. If you happen to have mental ease, notice that, it's fine. Because we're creating an atmosphere of well-being in order to help with this process. And that's really uh, what the Eightfold Path does also. So this is, um, well, this sign is from Japan, actually. Today is under construction. Thank you for understanding. So it's, this was um, a sign that actually appeared at a construction site. And so um, I, can t I can put this up there because I tried to learn Japanese for a number of years, which I loved, by the way. But I can say that I constructed sentences that were like way worse than that in terms of understandability. But it's, the thing is about this sign is that it's accidentally profound. <laughs> Because today is under construction. <laughs> today really is under construction. And if you understand that, thank you for your understanding. <laughs> uh, so, so this mind, right? This mind is a participant in our world. And it can't be fixed like a faulty instrument. It's not the same, not the same thing. Um, there's just this. There's just our experience. But the Buddha articulated a path that um, helps us to slowly and gradually um, change the way our mind-body system is working, not in a way that's disastrous, but in a way that is toward less suffering. That's what the path is for. And that is always our criterion as we're walking along the path. Is there less suffering? That's a good test. <laughs> Is this moving in a way that's feeling more ease, feeling more spacious, less stress, less struggle with my life? How can I struggle less with experience? This is a, I'm going all the way back to the Kalama Sutta, the very first thing. We check it out for ourselves. Is this going in a direction that's helpful? And if so, that's okay. And if not, don't do that. 
don't keep going in that direction. And we don't have to worry that we can't see the whole thing. All that's necessary is to take the next step that is going toward less stress or less suffering. What if, you know, what if we didn't know anything about the whole path, but every moment of our life we went from this moment to one that was uh, in some way less stressful, some way that we were dealing with it in an okay way and could get us to the next moment. If you put that together over the lifetime, that'll be good, right? That'll work. So all we, all we need is to look at that in the present moment. And so what I want to talk about in this last segment is a little bit about practices that are, have been found to be especially helpful in this process that we're doing. And of course, there's many, many of them in the teachings of the Buddha. But I want to highlight some that I think will be useful based on what we've learned today. And also particular ways that this analytical mind can get tripped up. Because um, I promised that in the beginning. And I do have a, a short list, at least, of ways in which I've, I've noticed in my own mind and from talking to other people that um, are you know, particular things to look out for. Uh, I think are, are good. So, and this helps us maybe understand something about what the Buddha was pointing toward. Remember there was that quote from Greg Kramer that the Buddha can only point to something with words. The words are not it. And so we can't conceptually understand uh, what the Buddha was aiming at. But it's okay. <laughs> we, st- we still have our experience every moment, and that's what we work with. This is hard. I'm saying this deliberately because it's hard for scientists who want to know. <laughs> that's one of our attachments, right? Okay, so here are some methods. I'll, I'll just talk about five. There are many. One is to train in experiencing the body and the senses clearly and directly rather than through concepts rather than so much through concepts maybe I should say since it's a process so that's what I've emphasized today is the, um, the physical aspects if scientists study the physical world what about the physical body it's a great gateway and it's a great area of study There are a lot of teachings about this. I mean, it's not unique to our time that people have difficulty connecting to their body or that people, you know, can get caught up in their head away from the body. This was happening at the Buddha's time also, and they didn't even have cell phones and all the other stuff that distract us. It was a culture, for example, of um, a philosophical and religious debate that was a popular thing at the time, is that people would meet in the public square and you know, talk about their philosophies. And the Buddha was uh, kind of down on whether on this being a, a route to true knowledge and wisdom that would be helpful for ending suffering. So he had some teachings about not getting caught up in debate and philosophy. And he also had very vivid teachings that point toward the body such as this quote from the Dhammapada, there is no fire like lust, there is no grip like hatred, there is no net like delusion, there is no river like craving. Are these just poetic images for us to say, oh, that's nice. 
uh, I think these are pointing toward uh, experiences that we can have. And so, for example, uh, the grip of hatred, for example. Is there a way in which when we're feeling anger or when we're feeling some kind of aversion, not liking something, uh, is there a way in which there's a, a grip associated with that in the body? This is something to investigate. I certainly find that my belly gets tense when I'm um, averse to a situation, especially, for example, if I'm in somewhere that's very loud and noisy and kind of impactful on my senses, like a crowded airport or something like that. Uh, I will actually feel uh, my body tensing and trying to kind of um, pull in from that. So I see this as one way that I can connect to the sutta. No grip like hatred. Oh, right. There is a grip. There is a grip associated with being averse. No fire like lust. What is that? Remember that lust means greed or wanting. It's a gener more general um, term. So is there a way in which there's something that we can feel in these suttas? So these are pointing toward helping develop this direct knowing. I'll point all the way back to the sutta we read earlier, where the last step of that path was realize with the body the supreme truth and penetrate it well with wisdom. Realize with the body. So there's a way in which the body and the mind are both going to participate in this process. So practically speaking, this means in sitting meditation, there's the experience of the body, actually feeling the simple, very simple sensations. But I also recommend things, um, external practices. How about yoga? How about tai chi? Other things that cultivate awareness and balance in the body. Uh, these are helpful. Or, you know, making sure, especially if you sit at a computer frequently for your work, go for a walk at lunchtime. You know, something to change the posture of the body so that the body has a more complete experience of its range of motion to the degree that you can with your health. So I think these are, are important practices, these embodiments. Uh, secondly, we can, train in, we can train our perception, particularly in seeing impermanence. And this is... Um, just through noticing, arising, and passing of things. How many things have changed today? <laughs> you know, can you even count them? <laughs> My goodness. So sometimes people will say, oh, I've been, um, I've been angry all day. And, you know, there might be a background mood that's, that's influencing us over the course of hours. That I, I understand. I've seen that. Uh, however, I would guess that it wasn't every single moment your mind was overcome with anger. So we can be a little more accurate about the fact that actually it's there sometimes and not others. It may be generally there for hours, but every moment wasn't like that. And so to be a little bit clearer on the changing nature of things and the fact that the edges are a little fuzzy sometimes and that um, anything that begins does eventually come to an end in our experience. You may take a, may take a little while to be sure about that one. But, um, yeah, so perceiving 
just slowly gathering data about the shifting and changing way that things are. And then uh, the, th- the third offering is that we strengthen attention. So that means training in mindfulness, in awareness. And this, uh, we may, there are many, many benefits of this, of course. One of them is to see more, see more of what's going on. But I think there's also benefit just in the strengthening of mindfulness so that our awareness can become a, a stronger part of our experience. For me, it was important that, you know, I found that at the beginning of my practice, I was easily overwhelmed by feelings, by the pain I was feeling, or by my emotions. I could be knocked over like a little boat with a big wave. Uh, it was just experience was stronger than my ability to be with it again and again. But I kept training in mindfulness again and again. I returned to, you know, when I was able to be aware, to be aware. And over time, that builds up the strength of awareness. It's like a muscle in the gym. They talk about, uh, you know, developing the mindfulness muscle. And over time, it gets stronger to the point where awareness can be stronger than experience. You can ride out experiences that used to be overwhelming simply because there's more capacity of awareness. The Buddha gives an analogy of um, if you were to dump salt into a cup of water, the water becomes completely undrinkable. It just overwhelms the water. But if you were to dump salt into the river Ganges, a freshwater river, uh, very little effect. So imagine if awareness were very strong, then the incidents of our life that come, uh, the changes, are more easily seen, more easily handled. So that's, and you don't have to worry that, you know, oh, I'm going to have to wait till I have some huge thing and that'll be the only thing that's strong enough. I've got to lift the 250-pound weight. So this is another case where the analogy breaks down a little bit. Uh, My experience is that lifting the 10-pound weights, just doing that, you can eventually lift the 250-pound weight, (laughs) even without having to, you know, build up with serious life experience. It'll be there for you when needed. But it does have to be developed. Like Matthew Ricard said, um, we don't think there's anything strange about taking years to get an education or to spend a while learning to walk and then to you know, do other things that we do to get to adulthood. So in the same way, we have to keep practicing and keep training the mind so it has the, the strength to meet things. And then there's um, the development of stability in the mind. Stability or centeredness or being able to collect the mind in some way. These are all different ways of saying the word that's sometimes translated as concentration. Um, But I worry about the word concentration because it too much sounds like a laser focus where we're bearing down. As we learned earlier, bearing down produces thoughts. (laughs) So uh, instead we're developing a stability of attention in order to see more clearly. Actually, concentration has two functions. One is that we can see very clearly, 
and the other is that it generates a sense of well-being. Concentration is really pleasant. <laughs> and that pleasantness is actually useful on the path. Uh, we need to have a, a sense of well-being in order to do this work. This is another quote from Matthew Ricard from his book, Why Meditate? Galileo discovered the rings of Saturn after devising a telescope that was sufficiently bright and powerful and setting it up on a stable support. His discovery would not have been possible if his instrument had been inadequate or if he had held it in a trembling hand. Similarly, if we want to observe the subtle mechanisms of our mental functioning and have an effect on them, we absolutely must refine our powers of looking inward. In order to do that, our attention has to be sharpened so that it becomes stable and clear. We will then be able to observe how the mind functions and perceives the world, and we will be able to understand the way thoughts multiply by association and create a whole world of emotions, of joy, and of suffering. So maybe it's important to emphasize that last point. The mind creates joy, too. <laughs> We've kind of looked at the way the, the instrument uh, might be misseeing things, but all of our experiences of joy and well-being and generosity and the um, positive aspects of being a human being also generated by a mind. They're generated by a mind that's well-balanced and is um, uh, receptive to the world and uh, not struggling with experience. So these things are created also. That's an important thing. If your path is um, getting a little grim from a lot of effort, uh, it's good to come and talk with a teacher or to look into that. Not that we can expect the path to be full of joy and bliss every moment. It's not. This is about the understanding of suffering so that we can let it go. So there's going to be some, you know, uh, encounter, shall we say, with difficulty. Um, but that's not all. That's not all of it. And so then just the fifth area of discipline I'll mention is that we refine our intention. We refine our intention over time. So this is kind of a reflective exercise, but it's the intentions that we have that help construct uh, all of today. <laughs> and so we, uh, we have intentions of compassion, intentions of loving kindness, intentions of wanting to see clearly, intentions of patience, are very helpful to actually reflect on and uh, use. And of course, our intentions are mixed. When we look, we'll find that they're mixed. And then we have compassion for that. <laughs> Intending to have better intentions is a great intention. <laughs> Don't worry about it. So different teachers will emphasize different elements of the path. What I've talked about are all different elements of the Eightfold Path which is what's articulated in the whole body of the Buddha's teachings. And the Eightfold Path is very complete. It's about our livelihood, about our speech, about our way of seeing things, about our meditation practice. It really includes um, many aspects of our life. So that's the other, you know, that's the beauty of it in a sense is that when it has this completeness to it, when we're able to engage 
all the parts of our lives, that's when the path functions in a healthy way and begins to thrive within us. So I encourage uh, the learning about the teachings, uh, learning about this, this complete system that was taught through the Eightfold Path and not just focusing on one little piece of it. And it takes a while. It's a, it's a gradual path. So the refinement of intention is kind of like the refinement of our paradigm. You know, we change that over time. And there does come a moment, and this is where things part from the scientific analogy that I've been developing this afternoon. Um, There comes a point where we're asked to leap without a new paradigm. Well, you know, what can only be pointed to. There's a sutta where the Buddha asks a group of monks, if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south, and the east, when the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? And the monks say very logically, on the western wall. He says, and if there's no western wall, where does it land? On the ground. And if there's no ground, where does it land? On the water. And if there's no water, where does it land? It does not land. The monks are, have to reply. And so there's, there's just this pointing in the end off into something I want to share another sutta called the Godata Sutta. It has a lot in it, but there's one section, I'll just highlight one line of it, where it points out that greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, the three main barriers to the mind, freedom, they're given a very interesting moniker. They're called makers of measurement says greed is a maker of measurement, hatred is a maker of measurement, delusion is a maker of measurement. And then, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the free mind is beyond measure. It's often likened to, for example, a, a bird flying through space, doesn't leave a trail. And that is something like the way the free mind moves through the world. And this is, this is peace. You know, this is said to be very peaceful. So that's an important point to emphasize is that that's the direction it's going toward. We can look for the peace in each moment and move in that direction. Always the criterion, is there less suffering? Is there less struggle going on? So all of this has been fairly general to the the process of the mind. The mind goes through the human mind. And I want to mention now particular challenges that are um, most likely for scientific, analytical, logical kinds of minds. Uh, 
oh, that goes with the maker of measurement. <laughs> so it's kind of funny when you see it like that, right? A tape, rule, a tape measure over a heart. You say, mm, that doesn't really make sense. So this is where uh, we're going to take that ruler away. So this is Stephen Batchelor. It's, um, it's a selfie that he took in a men's bathroom somewhere, you know, those places where the two mirrors meet at right angles, so you get all these reflections. I think it's pretty interesting. So uh, this is kind of, I'll leave it up to you how it fits, but this is uh, kind of my theme for what we're going through in this last section. So one issue, the biggest issue, is using concepts instead of direct experience, so not knowing the difference between experience and between my thoughts about it, essentially. So we should be vigilant about this tendency. That's why I emphasize body-based practices. Um, When I do breath meditation, I feel the breath in my whole body, actually. There's a number of ways you can do it. You can sometimes Sometimes you will feel it right here at this point, right at the nostrils, and some people feel it in specific places. I find it's useful to just have the whole body, just feel like the whole body is this breathing entity, and that gives a a very strong grounding. Why does it happen that the mind is so interested in concepts? Um, I don't know in general, it just is, but it's probably different for different people. But I can say that uh, for those who use their minds frequently, especially in their work, or who have uh, intelligent minds that can easily get concepts and easily transfer between them and understand things, there's a lot of pleasure. There's a lot of pleasure associated with intellectual knowing. It's fun. It's nice. I like thinking because, you know, I can get stuff and I connect stuff together. It's good, and I've used that today to connect a bunch of ideas together, right? So it's useful. It's not that it's wrong. But attachment to that pleasure will definitely prevent awakening. Attachment to that pleasure will will prevent the mind from making that, uh, eventually letting go. It's particularly challenging to get stuck in concepts of awakening and to be aiming for that. Like earlier we heard, aiming for love and compassion. <laughs> um, so aiming for awakening, because this, this will get in the way eventually. And then a second broad area is ignoring or suppressing emotion, which can be an issue. Um, there can be aversion to emotion because it it's kind of disruptive of that nice, clean, neat, logical process. Uh, So there can be aversion. It might be interesting to know that the Buddha didn't really distinguish thought and emotion. You know, we have these very, this is an example of a view from in the Western view of the mind. We have these clear distinctions of emotions are different from thoughts. And you don't see that in the in the text, the Buddha divided up the world in a different way, and emotion and thought all went in the same category, which was the category of things that we do voluntarily with the mind. <laughs> things that we do uh, voluntarily, so they're part of volitional formations. I mean, At that time, I don't know how it is now, I don't claim to have that, but 
at least in my understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, they're not clearly separated. He talks about anger, he talks about fear. I mean, he knew these, he had words for these things. And then he talks about thought and concept and view, and that's all kind of in that same category of stuff in the mind, um, which is interesting. I would also say that if we don't include our emotions, we won't have access to the full depth of our experience. You know, it's all, it's all part of this experience. And so there's a need to find a way to include it. Uh, there are, and I'll, I'm just saying this at a top level, there are again many techniques and methods and you may need to talk with the teacher about them in order to do that work. But just be aware that, that that's a, an interesting area for uh, rational types to look at. And then there can also be identification with the sense of being the observer. So I'm the knower. Um, we use this language, which is fine. The language is fine. Like I was watching my body, something like that. So the I is the person who was watching, right? And that's fine. It's not that the um, that we need to find some other, we need to you know, tie ourselves in knots trying to find some other way of speaking. Uh, but just be aware that that's being done at that moment. Is there's, um, and if that gets attached to, as I really am, that knower, um, that will eventually be a limitation. So this was the point of the mirror exercise. Did anybody do the mirror exercise? You look at the mirror? Yeah, some people. So how was that? Any comments on that? Interesting, okay. Yeah, because you can't actually see the surface of the mirror, right? It's not a thing that you can look at. And yet you can have the experience of trying to put your depth of focus right there. And there's, for those who weren't here at lunchtime, I asked people to look at the mirror. Not in the mirror, at the image, but look in, go to a mirror and look at the mirror. And what it does often for people um, is it creates a little shift in the way consciousness feels just because of that effort to look at um, basically what enables the seeing. And so you don't need to understand that or, or ponder it or think about it cognitively. It's just an experience to notice. And if there is a shift when you do that, uh, through some shift in the way consciousness feels, then it's interesting to rest, just rest in that shift. It may last one second, it may last a couple seconds, probably won't last hours, you never know. <laughs> but just if you notice a shift, then you can rest in that when you, when you do an exercise like that. So I'd, I'd like us to uh, finish with one last short meditation, and then after that there will be an opportunity for any final questions, and we'll conclude. So once more, find a posture that is comfortable. And tune in again to any internal sensations. Let's just go with the body. You can use the breath if you'd like, 
or just the sensation of the body sitting or the feeling of the body, like the, the body as an energetic field. opening to what might be directly experienced, non-cognitively. Just the sensations. In a simple way. Andrea Fella points out that There's no need to go digging down into experience. Whatever's presenting is experience, and that's what we work with. If experience feels permanent, you don't need to say, oh, but I know it's actually impermanent then you've created the concept of impermanence and put it on to your experience. So just sitting with what feels present. It's fine to just rest in experience if that what, that's what feels the most meaningful to you at this moment. Or you're also invited, if you'd like, to feel, and however this comes for you is fine, to feel some connection between the head and the heart some way in which the head and the heart are united within this mind-body experience.
trusting in the simplicity of experience. It's just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Are there any additional questions? We can use a microphone for these. Yeah. You could wait for a moment. Thanks. Uh, (coughs) Kim, thank you. I guess I agree with about 99% of what you said today, and I really love where you're coming from. Uh, Every so often in your talk, there's points that you make that I'd like to expand further on, and um, it seems like it would be nice if there were more time to do that, because I think that would be interesting. Mm. Uh, an example of that where you made the statement that the mind can understand itself and it seems like that's kind of like asking the fish to realize that it's swimming in water that seems like an impossible possibility I don't know, did I say the mind can understand itself? yes you did that's interesting that was the quote from the Buddhist scientist that wrote the book you might go back and look at that. Oh, 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 you're talking about when Matthew Ricard said, right. um, we'll be able to observe how the mind functions and perceives the world and understand the way thoughts multiply by association and create a whole world of emotions, joy, and suffering. Is that what you're referring to? Um, yeah, so the, then the, the question is, is that I don't think the mind can understand itself, but I do think understanding is possible, and enlightenment is possible. So then that brings up the question of, if the mind isn't doing it, what is the mechanism? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Yes. So that would be one of the questions. Mm. You know, because, um, and that's a philosophical question that I think religions, you know, they bring in the concept of something beyond, you know, like the soul, you know, as being this container, you know, for, you know, like Newton, he was felt like when he developed 
the planetary motion problem, which was the religious question at the time. You know, everybody, and he felt like he was understanding, literally understanding the mind of God, not yeah. his own mind. Newton was very religious, yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah, so there's this concept of, you know, something greater than the individual out there. Well, I think that's what gets point to, pointed to uh, at the end with the mind that doesn't land trail of birds through space. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing is, you talk about the paradigm, like you had the Michelson-Morley experiment, which proved if basically that the concept of ether is unskillful. Yes, that was the challenge, is the ether didn't work. Right, that or didn't Maxwell's work. Equations. Right. Yeah. And so then you have the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which by analogy, and hopefully this isn't a false analogy, proves that the concept of subject and object is unskillful. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. I'm going to be careful on that one. Okay. But that's what I come up with, mm. that in that realm, now, Newton's physics works for us on this planet Earth just fine. But it's not ultimately true. There's a deeper understanding. And the concept of subject-object works just fine on this planet Earth, but ultimately, when you get down to, you know, a broader reality, that doesn't work also. So, uh, that's, that's, those are my comments. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yeah, Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, it's on, right? You can hear me? Uh, so the, I think it was this morning when you were talking about views. Um, recently I've been working with the interface between waking and sleeping and dreaming. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do tend to fall asleep when I'm meditating. So um, as I was drifting into dreaming, I was, I was noticing how there, was, there were these views coming up or these um, thoughts. They were thoughts that were coming up and I was thinking, oh yes, that makes sense. And it all seemed to make sense. And then suddenly I realized this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> right, yeah. The uh, there was a Faraday cage came up. I have no idea why. And so it just, it was very interesting because it was a gradual thing that waking life in this room, seeing everyone around me, and then going into this, uh, this dream that had no reality and, mm -hmm. and, and for a while, see, just going yeah. along with it, that makes perfect sense. And then realizing it's kind suddenly, of profound, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it, feels, it feels very interesting. Yeah. So um, that's what I was working with today, oh, at least in the morning. That's great. That's great. That's an interesting interface. I thought that it was very interesting. What you mentioned at some point, you only get answers to the questions you ask. So, uh, about the paradigm. It, it was the uh, answers uh, we get depend upon the questions, the questions we ask. questions, yeah. It, it's quite profound, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and then is 
what do I need to know um, about the self? And yes, I mean, is, is there really a question here? Is there really a problem that I need to solve? Well, that's a good question. Is it's, there it's, actually it's, a problem? Yeah, like <laughs> this is worth noticing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, um, I think it's a little bit what I am starting to realize with mindfulness. Um, all those things that were so important before, it doesn't matter. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I mean, it's more than that. But No, I know you're not dismissing it or but, just separating, but it definitely changes our priorities. Yes. Uh, so there's some, there's some deeper value coming in for yes. you, essentially, which yeah. is part of this examining yes. of our intention. And yeah. I think even on the day today, uh, I'm as a scientist as well, it, we get to those points there's like I'm not getting anything out of it I need to check my question yeah my that's right turn around and look at that yes. question that's happening yes. and is that the right yes. question it's, it's yeah it was very interesting oh good thank you great um, I wanted to thank you for putting this together um um, what I found very uh, interesting is the way you approach the problem. You know, this morning we were like kind of all saying what we were hoping to get. And, and um, you brought a very um, unique view, I think, that, um, um, you know, is really um, worth exploring further and sharing. Um, I... I think that um, looking at not just the scientist, but how the scientific mindset has influenced our culture, um, paradoxically, you know, the way you brought it, I think that this is a great angle to actually uh, interest people that are not necessarily on the path that have you know a scientific mindset um you could be working in business as well same mindset right uh to be interested in this topic i think that uh, you know the way you framed it with the reproachments um sorry it's a french word um similarities (laughs) yeah (laughs) between the two and you know at the end of the day getting to the divergence um was very interesting. Uh, from a Dharma standpoint, I thought it was very interesting. It brought one more layer of depth, I think, um, to understanding. Um, you know, so you did a lot of guided meditation, which was fantastic. Uh, but there was one more lens compared to other guided meditation that um, I have been, which I thought was very useful. So, um, Thank you very much for bringing this um, new <laughs> um, connections. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, is there one over here? Okay, John and then... Well, you go first. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, go ahead. Go ahead. And uh, I was going to try to conclude on a note of levity. Okay. Uh, 
One thing that physicists and Buddhists have in common is a fondness for mountains and mountaintops. Um, I was told in the 1970s that a disproportionately high percentage of amateur mountain climbers are professional physicists. There's lots of Buddhist monasteries on the top of mountains. And I was, was in a campground way up in the Grand Tetons that I saw one of the best graffitis in a latrine I've ever seen. It was Heisenberg may have been here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that'll be the last one. Thank you. Next. Um, so my, my former life, I was a basic scientist, and so I can identify so much um, of what the Buddhist principles are through that lens of examining something carefully, being an observer, being unbiased, many of the things that we brought up today. But I've had a second career as a physician, and that really came home to me through what you said today, which was Buddha was there to end suffering. And why we might use these tools that we find in basic science to help us um, move forward. The ultimate goal was to end suffering. And so I actually think Buddha was a doctor and maybe not so much a scientist. You might be interested to know that that's in the suttas. He, he describes himself as a physician and uh, he's curing the disease that we have of clinging, which is causing our suffering. So you got it. <laughs> yeah, so what a great day. <laughs> um, I don't think there are grand conclusions. I think we can maybe be humbled by the task of practice and by the beauty of the heart that's seeking freedom in the same way that scientists end up being humbled by the vastness and the beauty of nature, right? So there's something very important and larger than us uh, going on in some sense. And I also really appreciated the opportunity to just be completely geeky today. <laughs> Science geek, Dharma geek. <laughs> and so, yeah, this has been, um, this has been good <laughs> anytime. <laughs> So let, let's just finish with a dedication of the merit from today and just wish that the goodness that came from the practice that we did today and from our engagement with the teachings and our reflection and understanding of the Dharma um, be used to end suffering in our own heart and in the world that we find around us. So may all beings be happy May all beings be peaceful and may all beings everywhere be free.